and welcome to From the EBPL Archives, Encore Presentations from the East Brunswick Public Library. I am your host, Melissa Hosick. This event was presented as part of our Just for the Health of It initiative. Just for the Health of It is a proprietary health literacy program developed by the East Brunswick Public Library to promote health literacy in Middlesex County. To learn more, visit justforthehealthofit.org. Now, enjoy the program. Welcome, and thank you for joining us this afternoon for today's Lunch and Learn with the Doctors on Sleep Disorders. My name is Kathy Chern, and I am a consumer health librarian at East Brunswick Public Library. Today's program is brought to you by St. Peter's University Hospital and the Libraries Just for the Health Initiative to promote community health and wellness. Our speakers today are Dr. Samuel Nee, Pediatric Sleep Specialist and Chief of Pediatric Sleep Medicine at the Children's Hospital at St. Peter's University Hospital, and Dr. Ashkan Elshanawi, Pulmonologist and Medical Director of the Center for Sleep and Breathing Disorders at St. Peter's University Hospital. Please be aware that this talk is being recorded. Please keep your microphones muted and your webcams off. The recording will be available at ebpl.org slash YouTube. If you have any questions, please type them into the chat box. Our speakers will answer questions at the end of the talk and our speakers will not be able to offer medical advice to attendees during this program. And without further ado, I'll turn things over to our first speaker, Dr. Nee. Thank you, Kathy. I'm happy to be here speaking at the library today. Um, when I told my son, who's four years old, that I'll be speaking at the library today, he asked me if there's gonna be uh, ghosts there and are the Ghostbusters gonna be at the library? So I said to him, um, well, no, the Ghostbusters won't be there and you're probably watching too much TV and need to go to the library. Uh, so um, hopefully we'll be able to get back to the library soon. Um, so I'm gonna be talking about uh, pediatric sleep problems. So um, this is really gonna be relevant to people out there that have you know, young children or grandchildren. Um, I have nothing to disclose. Um, so a lot of people come to me for a variety of pediatric sleep problems. Um, today's talk, we're going to be addressing behavioral insomnia of childhood and pediatric sleep apnea. I'm not going to get into other uh, pediatric sleep problems, but people come to see me for all different uh, sleep disorders. Um, as you can see um, over here on this slide, I see patients that have other issues such as restless leg syndrome, kids that come to me with um, night terrors, nightmares, and narcolepsy. Um, so we see a, a wide variety of sleep problems here at the uh, Center for Sleep and Breathing Disorders. Uh, so the first part of the talk, though, we're, we're going to talk about behavioral insomnia of childhood, and then we'll talk about obstructive sleep apnea after. Um, so a lot of people, you know, when they have uh, kids with sleep problems, they come and ask me, you know, how much sleep does my child need? Um, you know, it's a, a very good question, and the answer is it really depends, right? It depends on how old your child is. Um, so this is a nice chart that was put out by the American Academy of Pediatrics that really goes through the average amount of sleep that's required per age group. Um, as you can see, the uh, younger children require more sleep, um, and it, they also include naps. Um, this is basically, uh, you know, a range of how much sleep is required per age over a 24-hour period. You can see that naps uh, tend to fade out by school age. Um, so it's important to uh, you know, always reference this um, you know, chart when dealing with kids with sleep 
problems. Now, certainly if your child is getting an appropriate amount of sleep, but is having symptoms that are suggestive of sleep disorder, that should be looked at as well. So it's not just a, uh, an issue of um, uh, quantity of sleep, but it's also uh, you know, uh, a matter of quality as well. Um, but this is a very nice table um, and you know, something that um, you, know, you could look over um, and you could look it up on the American Academy of, uh, of Sleep Medicine as well as the American Academy of Pediatrics. So let's talk a little bit about behavioral insomnia of childhood, right? This is a very common problem. You know, roughly 20 to 30% of children suffer from insomnia at some point. Um, and really what is insomnia? Well, it's trouble falling asleep. It's trouble staying asleep. And uh, in kids, it's due to, you know, poor behaviors that um, the child has become accustomed to. You can see here, a kid that's, you know, probably having trouble falling asleep because he's hanging out and playing on his cell phone late at night. Um, so sleep um, behavioral insomnia comes in two different flavors. The first flavor is sleep onset association, right? So this is um, where an infant or a child links falling asleep to a, an external stimulus. Uh, you can see a, a picture of a, a woman rocking her baby. Now, it's not considered insomnia if a child is under six months of age. So, you know, under six months of age, we're not calling this a sleep problem. So once six months hits, um, then you could consider it a, a, a pediatric sleep problem. Um, and of course, you know, in order to um, go back to sleep in the middle of the night, the child will require that same stimulus, you know, in, in this case, being rocked or held to go back to sleep. Now, I, you know, uh, always like to, you know, tell families that when they're, you know, when they have a new baby, try to, um, you know, try to get the child to fall asleep without trying to rock them to sleep or, or, or really, you know, um, you know, hold them too much. You know, it's good to, you know, get them used to sleeping in their crib and, you know, maybe patting them to, to sleep instead. Um, so a lot of kids that um, are rocked to sleep, they'll require this to, to go back to sleep if they're, they wake up in the middle of the night. Um, the second flavor of pediatric behavioral insomnia is limit setting, right? So these are kids that protest going to bed, right? They make unreasonable demands um, before going to bed. You know, daddy, read me one more story. Uh, I want another glass of milk. Uh, and the, the way to, you know, really deal with um, limit setting uh, you know, behavioral insomnia is setting, you know, firm limits, right? So having just, you know, one story, uh, one book, one song, um, and really, um, you know, making sure that you, you establish firm limits. So, you know, the mainstay of treating behavioral insomnia is, you know, behavioral modification. Um, so any pediatric sleep disorder, we start off with establishing a positive bedtime routine. So, you know, every day, make sure you do something that's uh, relaxing before going to bed, you know, maybe giving some milk, uh, taking a bath, reading a book, singing a song, whatever you do, make sure that, you know, it's something relaxing, not over, you know, overstimulating and try to keep consistency. Now, in dealing with, um, you know, behavioral insomnia, the approach that we take to treating it um, really depends on the type of, you know, behavioral insomnia. Um, if it's a young child, right, that is, um, you know, being rocked to sleep, um, you know, we, we recommend uh, methods of extinction. Um, so, you know, one would be to, you know, basically put the child to sleep in their crib and let them essentially self-soothe. Now, this is very difficult for parents to do. So um, some parents might try to do a more graduated method of extinction where they put the child to sleep in the bed and, um, you know, 
we'll check on on the child periodically throughout the night, you know, initially starting off with short intervals and then increasing the intervals until the child is able to, you know, self-soothe. Um, for older children, for toddlers, um, you know, doing these methods of extinction are difficult to do uh, since older kids are able to get up and, you know, leave the bedroom. So for older children, um, we like to do positive reward systems. So this might be something like a bedtime pass where you give the child a few bedtime passes and if they want to, you know, leave the room, they can, but essentially they have to pay to leave the room. They have to give you a pass. Um, and if they wake up in the morning with those passes still in hand, they haven't used them, then they can redeem them for something small like M&Ms or stickers. You know, it's important to switch it up once in a while to, you know, just keep things interesting and so the child doesn't get bored. But that's a type of uh, positive reward routine that we use with older children. Now, some kids have trouble falling asleep because they might be going to bed, you know, at a time that doesn't coincide with their body's internal clock. Um, so, you know, you, you might see or I might see a, you know, a 10-year-old in clinic that's going to bed at 7, eight, uh, 7 p.m. And that might be, you know, too early for that kid. And the parent says, you know, it takes my child an hour or two to fall asleep. So then you might want to move their bedtime back to a later time. And that's called bedtime fading. So you move their bedtime back to a later time and then gradually shift it forward until you hit that sweet spot that really, you know, that really uh, um, syncs up with that child's internal clock. Um, so you might have to move back bedtime and delay bedtime um, if, uh, if that seems to be the issue there. So really, you know, our approach to uh, behavioral insomnia is one of doing some behavioral modifications. And again, it really depends on, on the type of, uh, you know, behavioral insomnia uh, that's present. So we do a lot of different strategies um, and we tailor um, the treatment towards that, that uh, type of insomnia. Um, now, a lot of parents will ask me, do medications play a role, right? So there's a lot of medications out there that people might try over the counter to treat their uh, children's uh, sleep problems, right? So you guys might have heard of melatonin, Benadryl, some prescription sleep medicines. So I'm going to address those uh, medications. So one of the more common medications used in treating, um, you know, sleep problems um, is melatonin. So what is melatonin, right? Melatonin is a hormone that's uh, secreted by your body. It's a natural uh, substance that is secreted by your body about two hours before your habitual bedtime. Um, now, when lights are dim, that's when melatonin is secreted. So this is something that's made naturally by your body, but yes, you could buy it, you know, over the counter. It's uh, not considered a prescription medication, right? This is a supplement. It's kind of like a vitamin. Um, so it's not really regulated as much by the FDA. Um, so one batch of melatonin that you get from Rite Aid might be different than the melatonin that you get from CVS. So that's something to keep in mind. Um, and when looking at the studies on melatonin in kids, um, there's really a very limited amount of literature on using melatonin to treat uh, insomnia. The literature out there really um, doesn't show much of a benefit of using melatonin to treat behavioral insomnia. Um, there has been shown some benefit in kids that have some neurodevelopmental issues, such as autism, and um, uh, you know those kids might benefit from melatonin, but we do see a lot of children that have tried melatonin that was prescribed to them by their pediatrician, and eventually they built up a tolerance to it, and it became ineffective. Um, so really, you know, at this point, um, I'm not recommending using melatonin for treating uh, behavioral insomnia. I believe that behavioral modification uh, strategies work a lot better 
uh, than melatonin. Um, I don't think melatonin is dangerous, right? The side effect profile is uh, pretty benign. Um, uh, we don't really have studies looking at the, the long-term uh, you know, side effects of melatonin, but it seems to be relatively safe. Uh, but keep in mind that you know, melatonin that you get at one place could be different than another place. And um, the, um, the dosage that's listed on it might not be entirely accurate since it is not heavily regulated by the uh, FDA. So at this point, I'm not recommending uh, using melatonin uh, for behavioral insomnia. Uh, another medication that people might try giving their kids is diphenhydramine, right? Also known as Benadryl. Now, Benadryl can make you tired, but um, it also can make you wired. And younger kids, it sometimes has this opposite reaction where the kid even becomes more hyper after getting Benadryl. Um, so they're really, again, like with melatonin, there's very limited studies looking at whether or not Benadryl can help kids fall asleep. Um, but the studies that are out there really doesn't show much of a benefit as well. So again, I'm not recommending using Benadryl uh, for uh, behavioral sleep problems. Um, prescription sleep aids. So uh, Dr. Elshinawi will talk more about insomnia of adults. Um, in kids, right, you know, we don't use any prescription sleep aids such as Ambien, Sonata, you know, all the different uh, prescription sleep aids. So these are not approved in pediatrics. So really, you know, the sense that I hope you're getting is that the main way of treating this is working on treating behaviors and uh, dealing with sleep hygiene, right? If, if sleep hygiene is an issue. Um, so I'm gonna to talk to you a little bit more about some basic, you know, sleep hygiene that I think and everyone can implement with their children and for themselves as well. So um, again, as I mentioned before, it's important to have a good bedtime routine, right? Every sleep problem, um, you know, the root of it, we should always go back to having a consistent and relaxing uh, bedtime routine in order to, to deal with the issue. Um, so again, reading a book, singing a song, something that's not overly stimulating. Making sure you keep a consistent sleep schedule is very important, right? So make sure that you get the same, uh, same bedtime and same wake day, time on weekdays and weekends. Um, make sure you set a bedtime, right? That is early enough for you to get the required amount of sleep. So, you know, that brings me back to that chart of how much sleep a child needs. So, you know, make sure your child is getting the appropriate amount of sleep for their age group. Uh, don't go to bed if you're not sleepy, right? If you can't fall asleep quickly within like 20, 30 minutes, get up, get out of bed, uh, do something boring, something, um, you know, not too stimulating. So read a book or, you know, I tell kids maybe to, to fold some laundry, you know, the parents always get a kick out of that, right? Something that is boring. Uh, so, uh, and then once they feel more tired then to get up and to go back into bed, um, you know, the bedroom really should only be used for sleep. Um, you can see here a picture of a kid watching TV in bed. And I know now during the pandemic, you know, kids are hanging out in their bedrooms more. I get that. But if they are hanging out in their bedrooms, you know, if they're doing work there, uh, try not to do the work on their, on their beds, really, you know, work at their desks. So really use the bedroom, um, really only for sleep. Um, and make sure your bedroom is quiet, relaxing, and at a cool temperature. Um, this is important for our teenagers, right? To limit exposure to bright lights in the evening and try to turn off electronics late at night, right? So our kids, our older kids, they're on their electronic devices, you know, all, all day and all night right now. And, uh, you know, it's very important to try to turn off the electronics at least 30 minutes, you know, preferably an hour before they go to bed because the blue light from our electronic devices, right, tricks the body essentially into feeling more awake. Um, it could also uh, block the secretion of melatonin, again, a natural hormone that makes you feel tired. 
Um, so that this is also very important, especially for our teenagers. Um, so when is, um, you know, a sleep problem, not just the behavioral issue, right? When is it a medical issue? So we're gonna talk about now pediatric obstructive sleep apnea. So this is a very common, you know, medical uh, sleep problem that I see in kids. Um, uh, one of the more common problems that I see in sleep clinic. Um, so these is gonna, you know, give you a sense of when your child might have um, something more than a behavioral issue. Um, so what is pediatric sleep apnea? So this is a disorder of breathing, right? That's characterized by a, an obstruction of the airway uh, that disrupts normal ventilation during sleep, right? So the airway gets blocked during the night, it collapses, um, and this can cause oxygen to drop. And this could lead uh, to you know, your brain waking up several times throughout the night. Uh, and this could lead to consequences, which we'll get into. Um, so when do we see pediatric sleep apnea? So um, I see it in kids of all ages, uh, but really the peak ages is between two and eight, um, and uh, roughly one to 5% of children have a pediatric obstructive sleep apnea. So this is a relatively common uh, sleep problem. Um, what causes sleep apnea? So anything that can cause a collapsing or uh, obstruction of the upper airway in kids, this is due to uh, typically big tonsils and, uh, and big adenoids. So this is a picture of a normal airway. And you can see it here over on the left. This is um, airflow through the nasal passages down into the trachea and down into the lungs, right? This is a normal airway with normal adenoids, which are on the back of the nose and normal sized tonsils. You can see here in the picture of the right, this is a child that has enlarged adenoids and enlarged tonsils. So you can see here that the airflow is not as linear, right? This is airflow that is obstructed. And this is a child that's more prone to uh, sleep apnea. So other conditions that can um, lead to uh, obstructive sleep apnea. So obesity, right? Um, that those children have extra fatty uh, depositions in their throats. Um, that can cause obstruction of their airways. Kids with syndromes, right, are more might be more prone to sleep apnea. Uh, the picture of the child on the left, you can see a kid with Down syndrome. Kids with Down syndrome, they have um, more um, floppier airways at baseline. They have enlarged tongues, right? So that could lead towards uh, obstructive sleep apnea as well, or other kids with neuromuscular conditions. Uh, the picture of a child on the right is someone that has Pierre-Rubin syndrome. So this is a kid with a very um, small recessed jaw and a corresponding small airway. Um, other conditions that are associated with pediatric obstructive sleep apnea are asthma and allergies, other uh, inflammatory conditions. This could cause inflammation of the airways. It could also increase the, the tonsils and, and the sides of the adenoids. So what are the consequences, right, of, of obstructive sleep apnea? So there, there are several. Um, you know, kids that are getting poor quality of sleep and have sleep apnea, they look like kids that have, you know, ADHD. A lot of kids that come to see me were previously diagnosed with ADHD, and in fact, they have a, uh, a sleep problem and not um, ADHD. So kids that aren't sleeping well, they are hyperactive, they're inattentive, they have difficulty uh, focusing in school, and, um, you know, they might have behavioral issues, right? So kids with sleep problems are a little bit different than adults. You know, Dr. Arsenali will talk to you about what sleep apnea looks like in adults. Some of our older kids, you know, they might be sleepy, um, but, you know, typically they're the other, the, the other side of the spectrum and they're more hyperactive. 
um, if sleep apnea goes on for a long time in kids, right, um, you know, um, it can lead to issues with the heart, like high blood pressure. So throughout the night, you know, when your brain is waking up from sleep apnea, your blood pressure also shoots up as well. So um, if this is going on many times throughout the night over years, this could lead to problems with blood pressure. Um, it could also lead to issues with your metabolism, your ability to regulate blood sugar, and it could also affect your cholesterol as well in kids. So obviously if you know sleep apnea is present, it's important that uh, we address it and we address it early. Um, so what are some of the symptoms of sleep apnea, right? So this is important to know, is this, you know, this will lead you to believe that, you know, uh, you're dealing with a medical problem here. So children that snore, right? Kids that snore, their tongues, they go back to the back of their throat and they obstruct their airway at night. Um, gasping for air, um, trouble breathing at night. So kids that have sleep apnea, their stomachs sometimes go in while their chests go out and vice versa. So that might lead you to uh, believe that they have obstructive sleep apnea. If they have trouble falling asleep and staying asleep as well, and they have snoring and some other issues that could also be sleep apnea. So it might not be just a behavioral issue. Um, kids that have sleep apnea, they're restless sleepers. They um, toss and turn a lot. Um, they might mouth breathe, right? Kids with big adenoids, which are in the back of the nose, uh, in order to compensate, they're gonna keep their mouths open and they might sleep with their head and necks extended. Um, you might even witness them having pauses in breathing, um, which is very uh, suggestive of sleep apnea. Um, kids that have bedwetting at inappropriate ages, also uh, a symptom of sleep apnea. So these are some of the nighttime symptoms. There's also daytime symptoms of sleep apnea. And I mentioned those before, you know, a lot of it is, you know, kids that are having trouble focusing or they're hyperactive. Um, the older kids might be sleepier. Um, some of them wake up with headaches, and uh, they might have uh, changes in their behavior and moods. So these are some of the daytime symptoms of sleep apnea. How do we diagnose um, sleep apnea in kids? So this is a little bit different than adults. In kids, um, the, the mainstay of diagnosing sleep apnea is by doing an in-laboratory sleep study, right? So a child will come in and sleep overnight. They'll be hooked up to a lot of different wires. We're monitoring their oxygen, monitoring their breathing at night. And what we're looking for is, you know, pauses in breathing and shallow breathing is what we see in sleep apnea, drops in oxygen. So um, this is how we diagnose uh, sleep apnea. Um, it's just the one night where they sleep overnight in our, our sleep lab, which kind of looks like a little hotel. Um, and they go home and after you know, a week or two, um, we will get them the results and, and, and go over them, go over the results with them. Um, I'm not gonna get too much into the treatment of, of sleep apnea. Um, it's really a very nuanced treatment um, for kids. Um, I could, I'm just gonna briefly touch upon some of the uh, different treatment modalities. Uh, but it really, um, it really depends on how bad the sleep apnea is, how bad the symptoms are. Um, that's how we tailor treatment. So if the sleep apnea is significant and there's, uh, you know, tonsils and adenoids are obstructing the airway, we might send someone to an ear, nose, and throat doctor to see if they need surgery to take out their tonsils and adenoids. Um, other treatment options are medications, right? We use some medications that uh, can help shrink tonsils and adenoids. If uh, someone has asthma and allergies, optimizing their management of their asthma and allergies can help as well. There's, ortho, there's also orthodontic procedures that can help uh, improve nasal breathing um, and treat sleep apnea. And there's also breathing machines such as CPAP, which 
Um, we don't use that often in children, but it is an adjunct therapy and it is an option for kids that um, do have significant sleep apnea that might not be candidates for surgery or for uh, residual sleep apnea in kids that have already had their tonsils and adenoids removed. Um, so that's a little bit about uh, pediatric uh, sleep disorders. Uh, I'm gonna um, allow my colleague, Dr. Elshanawe, to address the um, adult sleep disorders. Okay. Hi, can you hear me, Sam? Yes, I can hear you. Okay. Well, thank you so much. Um, Dr. D, that was actually really, really good. I know you very well, but I was impressed even more. <laughs> so um, you covered you. a lot of material, which actually makes my job a lot easier because I don't have to go in detail to, with some of the stuff you covered already, because obviously there's some overlap. Um, I'm really glad you mentioned the Benadryl and emphasize that it's probably not a good idea to give your kids Benadryl to sleep. Um, and I, I say that because I learned it the hard way personally. <laughs> and when my, I'll, just a little vignette, I didn't plan this, but when oh, my son was two years old, I was traveling alone with him on an international flight, 11 hours with a two-year-old. I mean, that's, that's ridiculous, right? To set up for failure. And then he was just so erratic. He couldn't sleep. He was jumping up and down. I had to carry him. I said, I'm giving him Benadryl. I'm done. And I've never done it before. I gave him Benadryl and he bounced off the wall even <laughs> more so for the entire flight. I wanted to shoot myself. Right. <laughs> there, was, there was a passing moment where I literally thought, you know, a plane crash is not that bad of a thing right now. I swear to you. So don't give your kids Benadryl. That's the moral of the story. <laughs> I, I, I concur. So, so I'm sorry, you, you brought me back to that PTSD moment. Okay, <laughs> so let me let me share my screen. I wanted to thank the, the folks at East Brunswick Library uh, for inviting us to uh, share some of our, uh, hopefully expertise with you guys about sleep disorders. And um, I wanna say I'm a proud patron of the East Brunswick Public Library. I live a few blocks away and uh, I really, really miss being in there physically and I hope really pray that we can uh, reunite physically again one day. Okay. All right, very good. Let me share my screen. All right, so I'm gonna be talking about sleep apnea and insomnia in adults. Um, so the sleep apnea is actually very similar to what Dr. Nee talked about. So I won't go into too much detail about what he spoke about because there's a lot of overlap, but there are very distinct differences too. Um, and insomnia also very different in terms of how we approach it, um, their symptoms and how we treat it, okay? So that's what I'm gonna try to focus on, mostly adults. Okay, so to start with um, the definition of sleep apnea, um, it, it means that you literally stop breathing for at least 10 seconds at a time, and it has to happen at least five times an hour during sleep. Okay, so that's what we look at when we do sleep studies. We look to see if you stop breathing five times an hour or more. And there's people who stop breathing a lot more than that. And I'm sure, you know, Dr. Nick could tell you stories how we see people who stop breathing 60, 80, 100 times an hour. It's actually possible to stop breathing that often. All right. One. So the signs and symptoms of sleep apnea, so that if you have some of these, you may wanna consider maybe getting a screening or a, a diagnostic test, but we'll talk about that next. So the, some of the symptoms we see with sleep apnea in adults is snoring, 
um, witness apneas. That means your bed partner may actually witness you stop breathing. So you, your stomach, your chest is moving and all of a sudden it's not. And I've had people videotape their partner, bring it to the office. I've had people time their partners uh, stopping breathing and they tell me, oh my God, it's 50 seconds, 60 seconds. One, one wife said, he stopped breathing for a good two minutes. And I'm thinking, how are you watching this and not waking him up? And two, I said, two minutes is too long. So um, yeah, don't, if you see your partner stop breathing, shake them, have them turn over because yeah, it could be dangerous if it goes that long. So interrupted sleep, like restless, you wake up and you find your bed, your sheets are kind of like almost like a tornado hit it. Uh, multiple awakenings to visit the bathroom. I have so many patients who are so used to getting up two, three, four times a night to go to the bathroom and they think that's normal. And they could be in their 40s or 50s. And I, I tell them that's not normal um, to, to go to the bathroom that often when you don't have a urologic problem. Um, and usually that's because you wake up from the sleep apnea. And then all of us know that if we wake up in the middle of the night, we have an urge to go to the bathroom. So they feel like the, the urge is waking them up, but it's actually not. And we prove that once we treat their sleep apnea and then they tell me, I don't get up in the middle of the night anymore to go to the bathroom, or I may just go once. So um, they see a big difference. Daytime sleepiness, and I have that in bold for a reason, but we'll, we'll visit that in another slide. But um, if you feel fatigued and tired and always feeling like you could take a nap easily during the day, um, and we have a little questionnaire that we ask people to kind of quantify how sleepy they are, and I'll show that to you soon. Um, people report morning headaches or dry mouth. Um, they have a hard time concentrating and focusing, um, whether it's at school, like Dr. Neem mentioned, or at their workplace, um, and labile mood. So they're very irritable. They're easily angered. Um, their partners will tell me they like just kind of go from zero to 100 really quickly. So that's what we're talking about when we see signs and symptoms, when we talk about signs and symptoms of sleep apnea. So next, what, what does sleep apnea actually do to your heart and brain? Um, and I, I try, it, it does a lot more than what I have listed here, but I'm really trying to simplify it right now and give you the most common things. And if there are questions about anything else, not in the slide, please ask us. Um, but the main things that we see over and over again, unfortunately, is high blood pressure. There's a strong association between sleep apnea, untreated sleep apnea, and um, high blood pressure. And also we see irregular heart rhythm. So some of you may be familiar with the terms as um, atrial fibrillation or SVT or PVCs. You know, it's a, if you know the names, that means your doctor at one point told you you have that. And unfortunately, um, because when sleep apnea happens, adrenaline is released into your bloodstream. Every time you have a long apnea, adrenaline goes into your system and that speeds up your heart rate and your blood pressure and can cause you to go into an irregular heart rhythm, which is potentially dangerous and can cause strokes, which I, can, which I listed at the bottom. Um, it also can cause a very fast or really slow heart rate. So even though we've been focusing on how it goes faster, I've seen people go very slow, like in the 30s or 20s heart rate, which is dangerous in some circumstances. And some of these people not only need treatment for their sleep apnea, but need a pacemaker placed. And some of you may be familiar with that as well. Alrighty, let's move on. Okay, so this is the Epworth sleepiness scale that I was talking about. Um, this is what we use in the office to kind of try to quantify uh, how sleepy you are. 
And if you guys can take a moment and grab a pen and paper. So we're gonna try to make it a little interactive instead of you just listening to me. So this is what I would do in the office. So pretend that I'm seeing you in the office and this is the questions I'm gonna ask you. And I want you to write down on a piece of paper, unless you have a really good memory and just can just remember the numbers. And you're gonna rate it from zero to three of your chance of dozing in any of those circumstances, okay? Zero means there's no way you would doze off. One, there's a slight chance. Two, there's a really good chance. And three, oh my God, I'll pass out in that circumstance. Okay, so I want you to rate each circumstance, okay? With zero to three, anywhere. So sitting and reading, what is your chance of dozing off? Write down your number. Uh, watching TV, what is the chance of you dozing off? Sitting inactive in a public place, like a theater watching a movie or a meeting, uh, or on a Zoom call, for example. <laughs> As a passenger in a car for an hour without a break. Okay, so not as a driver, because if you're sleepy as a driver, that's a whole nother problem. But as a passenger, lying down to rest in the afternoon when circumstances permit, would you possibly doze off? Sitting and talking to someone, just one-on-one, -on -one, would, would you sleep in that circumstance? Sitting quietly after lunch without alcohol intake. In a car while stopped for a few minutes in traffic, and that's as a driver. All right, did everybody put their scores in? I'll give you like 30 more seconds, okay? And then we're going to tally up all the numbers for these eight questions. Okay, so the least you can have is zero. If you put zero for all of them, the highest number you can get is 24. So anything higher than 10 um, means you're pretty sleepy and there's guys, that doesn't mean you have sleep apnea, but it means that either you have insufficient sleep, you're not getting enough sleep, or your quality of sleep is poor. Um, or you may have sleep apnea. So it's just a marker of it. It doesn't diagnose you with sleep apnea. So hopefully that was helpful to some of you and you could give this to your friends and family for fun because you know we're obviously bored during the pandemic. All right, here we go. Next slide. Okay. Don't, don't, don't leave, um, don't put away your pencil and paper because we have one more questionnaire for you. And I pile, I promise this is the last one. So this is another very important questionnaire that we put in our offices and in our sleep centers. And this one is actually even more valid and helpful than the one I just gave you. Because the other one was just really quantifying how sleepy you are. This questionnaire, and I'm gonna walk you through it, really tells you, uh, tells us, your, your physicians, your caregivers, if you really have a good chance for having sleep apnea. So if you test positive on this, that buys you a sleep study and your insurance would cover it most likely, but we'll talk about that in a minute. All right, so let's answer these questions. And again, give yourself one point if you answer any of these questions, yes. Okay, so the first question, do you snore loudly, loud enough to be heard through closed doors or your bed partner elbows you for snoring at night? If you do, if you do snore loudly, put a, put a point for yourself there. Two, do you often feel tired, fatigued, or sleepy during the daytime, such as falling asleep during driving? If you do, put another point there. Has anyone observed you to stop breathing or choking or gasping during your sleep? Another point, if it applies to you. Pressure, do you have or are being treated for high blood pressure? So even if your blood pressure is normal now because you're taking one medicine or two medicines or more, you still get a point for that. You just have to have a history of it, okay? 
is your body mass index. And some of you may not know this answer. You'd have to kind of calculate it. And there's um, BMI calculators on, you know, you could Google it and you can literally put your height and your weight and it will tell you what your BMI is. Um, and if it's higher than 35, then that's in the obese category. And I hate that word and I'm sorry, but that's the medical term for it. And um, it does put you at higher risk for sleep apnea. Age older than 50, just if you're older than 50, puts you at a higher risk for sleep apnea. Your neck size, and again, a lot of people don't know their neck size. It, uh, men usually do because they, the shirt, the collar that they wear, um, so that you know that size of the shirt. But women usually don't know, but they'd have to really measure with a measuring tape. Uh, so for men, if your shirt collar is 17 inches or larger, then you give yourself a point there. For women, it's 16 inches or larger. So again, obviously, if you don't have to measure right now, you could do it later. Um, and last question is, are you a male? If you're a male, you get a point just for being a guy. And I'm sorry to say that, but that puts you at higher risk for sleep apnea. Now, once you tallied up all your points there, if you score three, even three points, you're at a higher risk for sleep apnea. But if you, the higher you score, four, five, six, some of you will be eight out of eight. That is very high risk for sleep apnea. You should definitely speak to your doctor, um, maybe consult with a sleep specialist, but certainly not necessary. Just start speaking to your primary care doctor about your screening test, uh, which is a very valid test, and say, do I need to have a sleep study? And uh, discuss it with each other and decide together. All right, I'm leaving this busy slide. All right. How is sleep apnea diagnosed? And I'm not gonna go into too much detail because Dr. Nee already went over it. Um, and the first one, and, and as he told you, the children, they all get it done in the sleep center. For adults, we have an option to either send you to the sleep center, and there are certain reasons why I would send an adult uh, patient to a sleep center rather than doing a home sleep study. Um, so th some of those reasons would include if you have a history of COPD, which is chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, like emphysema, for example. If you're on oxygen at home, um, if you have interstitial lung disease or, or scarring in your lungs, if you have congestive heart failure, if you ever had a stroke, those are the reasons I would send you to a sleep center and not choose a home sleep study, okay? Um, now, home sleep studies have become more and more popular even before the pandemic hit um, because they're convenient, they're relatively inexpensive, they're almost always covered by the insurance and approved and authorized by the insurance. Um, and patients love them because they come pick up the device, they take it home, or we ship it to them, whatever they choose, and we have both options at St. Peter's Sleep Center. Um, and the sleep study is done at home for one night and the patient returns it and the next day we download the data and one of us interprets the data and we contact you with the results and with a follow visit or a call and let you know what treatment options are available for you. Okay. Now, how is sleep apnea treated for adults? Okay, so um, CPAP or conti uh, continuous positive airway pressure, I think a lot of you are familiar because you have a friend or a family relative who, or a neighbor who has CPAP, involves wearing a mask over the nose or over the nose and mouth, um, and it delivers air pressure just to keep that back of the throat open enough to eliminate the snoring, eliminate the apneas, and improve your oxygen level throughout the night. And if that happens, remember, 
then you won't have the adrenaline release and you won't have the blood pressure surges and the heart rate surges. So it's all connected, it's cause and effect. Um, the other option um, for, for sleep apnea, especially if you have mild or moderate sleep apnea, and that's defined as um, if you stop breathing anywhere between five to 29 times an hour, believe it or not, it's considered mild to moderate. Um, we can send you to a dentist who specializes in treatment of sleep apnea and they can fit you for an appliance that goes usually on your lower jaw, pulls it out just a few millimeters while you're sleeping. You really don't feel much of a difference except the bite may be off, um, but that helps treat the sleep apnea. And I choose that as a second option, not as a first line. If someone tried CPAP and didn't tolerate it or for some reason it wasn't covered or for whatever reason we go on to dental appliance. The convenience of that is that you have this little device, you could put it in your pocket, your purse, whatever, and you could travel with it. And it's so easy to just pop it in at night and take it out in the morning. Um, there's also options for mouth throat surgery. Um, I don't advise a lot of surgery in my adult patients. If I had a pediatric patient, definitely I see the, the outcomes are so much safer and um, certainly more effective than they are in adults. But um, I'm not going to list all the surgeries right now because there are actually so many surgeries that are done to treat sleep apnea, but I find a lot of them um, are not totally effective in the long term. So usually after one to two years, uh, sometimes the tissue comes back or the sleep apnea certainly comes back. I've seen that often. That's why I tend to not recommend it highly. Um, weight loss, if you do fit into that category where your body mass index is above 30 or 35, weight loss can certainly help you improve your sleep apnea. Um, there are a uh, new implanted, implanted device called Inspire, um, which is implanted under the skin, very similar to how um, a pacemaker is implanted. And the wire though, the electrode actually goes into what's called your hypoglossal nerve, which controls your tongue back of the throat and it helps keep it open, stimulates it open um, while you're sleeping. And then you can actually turn it off when you wake up. And it's been pretty safe. It's been out there for at least five or six years and ear, nose and throat surgeons actually perform that procedure. So you would have to consult with one of them after you've seen perhaps a sleep uh, specialist. Positional therapy just means the position you're in bed when you're sleeping. So we find some people, most people, their sleep apnea is worse when you're lying completely on your back, flat on your back. And so we tell people if that's the case, especially if it's mild sleep apnea and it's on your back, we tell, you know what, you could do away with CPAP. You could possibly sleep on your side, prop some pillows, body pillows, whatever you got to do um, to keep on your side. But unfortunately, long-term, it's really not effective because people will end up just going right back onto their back. So I kind of use that as a temporary short-term until I get them definitive treatment. Okay. All right. So a rough transition here from sleep apnea to insomnia. And I'm just checking the time, make sure we're good. Okay, so I'll try to rush through this a little bit. So we have um, two kind of categories of insomnia in adults that I see. And I see a lot of patients with insomnia and it's actually one of the more common reasons why I see patients with sleep disorders. Um, so there's sleep onset and sleep maintenance. What that means is sleep onset is the person cannot initiate sleep. They're in bed, tossing and turning, looking at the clock, looking at their phone, they just cannot fall asleep for whatever reason. Sleep maintenance means you are able to fall asleep as soon as you hit the pillow, but then you wake up several times during the night for whatever reason. Some patients have both, both of the worst of the two worlds there. Okay, 
Some causes of sleep, uh, sorry, of insomnia in adults include stress, and we have a, a little pandemic going on. And I have seen so many patients who are not only depressed, anxious um, about the pandemic. I think we all are at some level, um, not just you guys, it's, it's affecting us as well. Um, and it definitely does affect our sleep. And not only do we have sleep onset or sleep maintenance insomnia, they just the quality is so poor because some of us have nightmares, some of us are just stressed about this pandemic and when is it gonna end? So even before the pandemic though, the biggest reasons for insomnia in adults is depression and anxiety. So I always try to evaluate for that when I get a new patient with insomnia. Some um, patients, especially women, when they enter the years of menopause, they their sleep just is completely rigged. And um, some patients, very, very fortunately, it doesn't affect them at all. Some individuals, some women, but a lot of women, once the estrogen levels decline during menopause, they'll notice their sleep. They can't sleep as long as they used to, whether it's hot flashes or even not, they're just not able to sleep. So we give them very specific guidelines. Um, travel for people, especially um, who do business, who travel, across time zones in the country or even outside the country, um, they're, they're, it's really rough getting them to sleep well because every week is completely different. But we, again, we have measures to help those folks as well. Shift workers who, who work at night, just like our wonderful sleep technicians at our sleep center, they work nights, most of them. And um, it's really, really rough. I commend them uh, for what they do because I remember working at night when I was an intern and it's just, it's a different lifestyle. And um, no matter how much sleep you try to get during the day, it doesn't feel quite right because we were kind of designed to sleep at night and stay up during the day. So what, what they do is just pretty amazing um, and to carry out their life during the day too, <laughs> normally. Um, medications, I always look at the medications when people come to me with insomnia because some of the, sometimes they're the culprit. So if someone is on a diuretic, which is a water pill that can wake them up in the middle of the night, um, and that might be why they're getting up three, four times a night. Sometimes it's simple as that. And I'll tell them, take it in the morning, not at night, and then problem solved. Okay, you don't need a sleep study, or you don't, you don't really need the med medication. You just need to adjust your medications around. Decongestants, a lot of people are on decongestants without even knowing they're on decongestants. So for some of you who have allergies and take like Claritin D or Allegra D or Zyrtec D, um, the D part is the decongestant and it's in there whether you like it or not, if you buy that one. So I always recommend to get the antihistamine without the D, without the decongestant because decongestants are notorious for uh, causing insomnia and they last in your system for so long. So once you take it, especially at night, it's really rough to sleep that entire night. Um, caffeine, even though it's not a medication, a lot of us treat it as such. <laughs> it's a drug, <laughs> drug of choice, and that definitely keeps you up and alert, uh, but that's good during the day. I tell people to try to cut out all caffeine intake after 3 p.m. if possible, um, because it can last in your system for up to at least 10 hours, and so uh, we don't want that uh, intake in the, in, in the evening for sure, because that will definitely not only wake you up, because it's alerting, but it also acts as a diuretic and makes you go to the bathroom to urinate more often. So we don't need that at night. So keep those medications away from nighttime, especially. Okay. Sorry, that was a mouthful, I know.
Okay, so treatment for insomnia, uh, very different than, uh, very different, yeah, very similar to what Dr. Nee uh, talked about. So sleep hygiene, I'm so happy he went into it in so much detail, so I'm not going to. Um, and especially because we're, you know, probably running out of time. So um, when one of you guys play, guys play this back when it's recorded on YouTube, um, you can obviously revisit his slides about the sleep hygiene, which were excellent. The next thing that I do, because um, sleep hygiene is the foundation, we always start with that. But statistically, sleep hygiene alone, only, if you only practice sleep hygiene, that's not enough to treat your insomnia. That's been proven over and over again, but it has to be one of the components of the treatment. The real treatment that has worked for um, most people with insomnia, especially if they stick with it, is cognitive behavioral therapy. And they have, there are certain different components to that, and we go through it during our, our visits when we talk about insomnia. But uh, just for one example, it's one of the components is called sleep restriction therapy. And I think Dr. D kind of touched upon that even with the children, uh, because we want to limit the time you're in bed to the amount of time you think you're realistically going to sleep. So if you're sleeping from midnight, waking up at five, and you're, you know, you're driving yourself crazy, I have people sleeping, going to bed at nine, hoping they'll sleep before midnight but they end up just tossing and turning for three hours and it's very anxiety provoking. So I tell them, don't punish yourself, go to bed at midnight and get up at five and do it long enough until that whole stretch is filled with sleep. And then you can kind of come back and put your bedtime at 11.45, it's then 11.30. And you have to do it really slowly to train the brain um, to really prolong that sleep schedule. So we do that in detail in the office. I'm not gonna go into too much detail now because it may not apply to everyone's listening right now, um, but there are different components to cognitive behavioral therapy and it's proven over and over again that it works even much more than medications ever could, okay? And it's safe because it doesn't require you um, popping a pill. Now the last resort, and I think you see that as a common theme between pediatrics and adults is it really is the last resort. Um, I will prescribe and I have prescribed medications, sleep aids many times, um, but only after, you know, you know, there's, we've tried it, everything and it's really affecting the person's quality of life, their work, their school. Then I introduce the safest medications I can and uh, hopefully ones that are not habit forming um, and they're not overly sedating, but just help the person ease into sleep. Um, and I always tell them this is a short-term solution. I don't like to have sleep aids on for years. So that's a key thing that we tell everyone. Um, do I have, oh, no, I think that's it. Yay, I'm done with my part. And I think I'm gonna give it back to the East Brunswick Library folks to um, see if we have any questions from our audience. Thank you for listening. Okay, great, thank you. Uh, Dr. Dr. Alshanawi and Dr. Nee, thank you so much. Um, so we're gonna start with our Q&A now. Um, we have time for just a couple questions. And so if you have any questions, type them into the chat box, please. And let me just see, okay. So we have one comment and a question. So first, thanks for some great information and question. Can we learn anything useful by taking oxygen readings through the fingertip when waking up at night with respect to the risk of sleep apnea? Does O2 level bounce back too quickly when you wake up so that this is not useful? And is a heart rate of 90 beats per minute when waking up high enough to be an indication of sleep apnea? Do you want me to take that, Sam? Yeah, I'll let you take that one. Okay. 
Um, that's a really good question. And I, I, I've actually been asked that. So sometimes my patients will tell me, I don't think I have sleep apnea because when I get up, I check my pulse ox, um, the finger probe, and it's normal. It's 92, it's 94. And I tell them that's not really a valid indication because you are awake. And what you said about does it bounce back very quickly, that's an excellent point. It really depends. If you have a very long apnea, meaning you stop breathing for a good minute, your oxygen decline may last a little longer. So if you get up gasping for air and you slap that quickly, you might catch it when it goes into the 80s, the low 90, we say is, you know, it's not normal. Um, but you can't really rely on that. Sometimes we actually do oxygen, like as a pulmonologist, I do that test uh, often um, in the patient's home where I mail them uh, an oximetry uh, probe that monitors their oxygen the entire night. So they're not just doing random checks. Um, and they, um, that data comes back to me and I can then tell them your oxygen was low for 40 minutes that night or for 20 minutes or whatever. Um, and then your, what was the second part? I'm sorry. Um, the second part is, is a heart rate of 90 beats per minute when waking up high enough to be an indication of sleep apnea. Yeah, not, not necessarily. However, it really will depend on what your resting wake heart rate is. So if you're sitting around, you know, watching TV calm and you check your heart rate and it's usually 60 or 70, then a heart rate of 90 during the night is actually abnormal because when you uh, sleep for all of us, whether you have sleep apnea or not, your heart rate is supposed to actually go down. So if you have 70 during the day, your heart rate should be 60 or maybe even 50 when you're, when you're uh, asleep. Again, when you're waking up and measuring it, you may have that fight or flight thing going on and that might be the reason, but no, uh, a 90, if your heart rate was 60, 70 is abnormal, but it really depends on what your baseline heart rate is. And then um, there's another question about sleepwalking in children, uh, and her and this person's child is always tired during the day despite going to sleep at an appropriate time. So, what, so sorry, uh, Kathy, what was the question? So I think the question is about um, sleepwalking in children. Mm -hmm. Like how? So, yeah. So yeah, if your child is sleepwalking, right, and it's going on frequently, um, and your child feels tired and they're getting appropriate amount of sleep, they definitely, you should definitely bring that up with your pediatrician. Uh, it sounds like you might need to, to see a sleep specialist and perhaps do a sleep study. So sleepwalking, if it occurs, you know, once in a blue moon, that could be normal. Some people, if they're sleep deprived, they might sleepwalk. But really, if it's, this is something that's been going on for a while, it should definitely be uh, addressed further and uh, sent for a, uh, probably to start off with a pediatrician, but uh, might need to see a sleep specialist as well and do a sleep study to make sure that there's not a sleep breathing problem going on, like sleep apnea. So sleep apnea, we often see in kids that have these abnormal behaviors during the night that are occurring frequently. Okay. Um, at what age will night terrors be a concern? Uh, and often the pediatrician says that the kids grow out of night terrors. So um, we typically see night terrors in toddlers. Um, you know, it's, pr it's pretty common. Sometimes I do see it even younger in, 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 in kids that are even like, you know, less than one, but that's not as common. Um, typically they are benign and kids do grow out of them. But if they are, again, if they're occurring frequently, and there's other symptoms going on like snoring or pauses in breathing, that should definitely be in, investigated further, right? If these uh, events are occurring many times a night, 
or if they're occurring frequently, that's something that needs to uh, be evaluated by a sleep specialist because then there could be something else going on like, um, like sleep apnea. Um, but uh, typically kids uh, do grow out of them um, early on in childhood. And so just one final question. Um, is it possible that this person, well, this person just commented, is it possible that I only need five hours of sleep because I go to bed at about 11 and then wake up at 4 a.m. many times completely refreshed? So I, I can take this question, uh, Dr. Elshinami. I mean, some people, right, are just short sleepers. We know that, right? There's some people that just are lucky and they have this genetic, you know, predisposition to require less sleep. You know, Margaret Thatcher uh, was one of them. Bill Clinton, I think, was also another one that just did fine with like only five, six hours of sleep, right? The average amount of sleep. Albert, just, Albert Einstein was another. Albert Einstein. Yeah, there's a lot of people that are just lucky. Most of these people, you can see the trend. Most of these people are probably uh, are very successful. So you're probably a very successful guy if you're only sleeping five hours and you're doing great. Um, but, uh, you know, most, um, you know, adults require around seven to nine hours of sleep. But uh, there are, again, people that are just short sleepers and they feel fine. And, you know, if they have no other symptoms, that just might be a normal uh, genetic variant. And you're consider yourself lucky if you're one of them. Oh, and um, is it okay? Just one last question. Sure. If you have time. Okay. How effective are Fitbits and similar wrist devices for measuring awakenings, sleep phases, etc.? What percent of total sleep or number of hours uh, REM and deep sleep are minimum thresholds or what levels might be considered a problem? All right, I'll take that. So, because I, I, I have a lot of patients who come in with their Fitbit data and I honestly, I haven't looked into the, the validity of Fitbit data, even though I have one too. <laughs> but what I like about it is that it gives us kind of relative information, meaning when you're looking at your data night to night, you can tell that, wow, I had a lot of more deep sleep this night or this day, I didn't have as much. I can't say the Fitbit tells, measures exactly how much REM you had or how much deep sleep, but I think it's, it's a good marker and I think you can use it almost as a feedback mechanism where um, if you see one, one or two nights that are just horrible and you're wondering why, you should kind of look back at your day and see what you did, what kind of stimulating activities you did, what did you drink, what did you eat, um, how much exercise did you do or did not do, and then that will help you, you know, determine why, you know, you're having some good nights and some bad nights. In terms of the, the percent, um, we say that um, deep sleep, which is called N3 or you know, uh, stage three sleep, we try to uh, strive for 20 to 25% of your night being in deep sleep. And then pretty similar amount for REM, about 20 to 25%. So basically half your sleep time should be in deep and REM sleep. And the other half should be in very light or you know, stage, what we call stage one and stage two sleep. So that's completely normal because I, I get that really often when uh, people are sharing the data. So at least you can, you know, look at the relative percentages and night to night. I, I would say, you know, use it for that as a tool. Okay, great. Thank okay. you so much. Sure. Right. So thank, thank you, you Dr. Nee, and thank you, Dr. El Shanawi, for taking the time to present on this and for answering all our questions. So um, next week, we will have another Lunch and Learn with the doctor, and the topic will be on arthritis, and it'll be on Friday, February 5th at 12 p.m. noon. You could sign up for this program at ebpl.org slash calendar. And thank you for everyone who joined us for today's talk and take care and stay safe. Thank you. Stay thank safe, you. guys. Bye.
Thank you for joining us for this week's Encore presentation. To join us for live programs or to learn more about the East Brunswick Public Library, visit our website at ebpl.org.